Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And while I know you've already been asked to stand, I want to ask you to stand again as we read from chapter 1 and chapter 5. Please stand as we read God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore, now I want to ask you to stop there and recognize at this moment you know that when you see the word therefore, there's a connection being represented. What does this therefore take us back to? Well, there are six therefores, and they each ultimately refer back to what we just read. And you will recall joyously that the work of salvation, the work that is done in the life of a believer, is rooted in the sovereign decree of God. Were it dependent upon you or me, it would be hopeless. And so we are grateful. We thank the Lord for the privilege to read his word and see with such remarkable clarity 
that the truth faith that one has in Jesus Christ is in the one who is the God of sovereign grace. I want to refer you specifically back to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1 as we pick up after the therefore we just read. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's critical to understand that a Christian loves Christ. You remember sometime back when Tony McCracken was here and he said, you don't have Christianity if you don't have Christ. It was such a moment of clarity in his sermon that we would understand that Christianity is about Jesus. Being about Jesus is being about being conformed to his image, which is manifested in obedience. It's the desire to obey his word, to want to honor him, to want to glorify him, to want to exalt him. And so the person who gives lip service to the person of Christ really gives lip service to the, the religion of Christianity and yet has little or no interest in obeying him has probably developed some sort of disdain for the doctrine of sovereignty, recognizing that there is this relationship between his sovereignty and our faith is really the beginning of understanding. I'm not saying it's the beginning of your salvation because you don't, you don't need to understand this to be saved, but you do need to understand this in order to know how to properly exalt the Lord and grow. It's a matter of humility, understanding that when God does a work in someone, it's him who's actually doing it. Well, now back to chapter 5, verse 1. Having read the word therefore, we pick up with this command. It's, a, it's an imperative. It's a call to do something. And it's not ambiguous. It's a clear command. Be imitators. Be imitators of God. You see, that's the the beginning, I believe, of Paul's orthopraxy in this chapter to help us understand that because of who God is and what he has done, we are to respond with being like him. How do we do that? We obey his word. We obey his word. So be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Please be seated. Toward the end of each calendar year since we planted the Anchor Bible Church, I've done one or even in some cases two messages in an effort to help you recalibrate, to really get back into a rhythm of uh, your daily devotions. And we've never ever done that simply for the purpose of producing in you some sort of what we might call a, a vibrant or even euphoric experience with the Lord Jesus. It's really not ultimately about that. Those are not bad things to have a vibrant, euphoric experience with Jesus. That's tremendous. In fact, that ought to be probably more regular for us than it truly is. But ultimately, especially as uh, to be understood from the book of Ephesians, what it really is about is being somewhat of an unknown and ultimately forgotten member of the body of Christ. You say, well, how special is that? Well, it's not about being special. It's about being faithful. The mundane details of the spiritual disciplines are really what the Lord calls us to, and they don't really get a lot of airtime in the world. In fact, most people, if they knew what the faithful Christian was called to, looking at that through the lens of the unredeemed condition, would say, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. That's not really appealing to me at all. But the basic spiritual disciplines of the Christian life really are ultimately what the Lord uses to bring the manifestation of his glory in a person's life, not singularly in that person alone. Christianity is not a, a one-man sport. It is about the body, finding your place in the body of Christ, understanding what the spiritual gifts are, understanding what yours are, and then experimenting, asking what are the needs within the body? How can I be useful to meet those needs? So many of you had the blessing of uh, hearing from my dear and close friend Kurt Gebhards last week when he preached, and I, I know that he's preaching that same message this morning and then next Sunday in another church. I don't know where, but uh, I wanted to encourage him, so I sent him a text this morning and he responded by saying, thank you so much for that prayer. I mentioned each of his kids by name and told him, we're praying for all of you that the Lord would give you the wisdom to know how and where you might be useful to the kingdom maximally. And his response, as Kurt always is so gracious, was, what a beautiful prayer. Thank you. That's ultimately what we want, to be ultimately useful. And I love that term because it's so utilitarian and yet so spiritual. It's doctrinally practical. When you look at 2 Peter 1, you remember that Peter makes this statement that's a, probably 
quite alarming the first few times you read it, if you're paying attention. He says to be certain of your calling and your election. And if you back up, that's verse 10, if you back up from there, you see that Peter gives a list of practices in which uh, one must engage in order to assess his life, to be able to honestly know whether or not his election is manifest. In other words, whether or not he's actually saved. The question is, are you useful? Be useful. Um, Jerry Ragg said to me now a little over 20 years ago when I had been discovered to be useless, if I'm going to be honest, Jerry said, you know, Todd, you, you need to become useful. <laughs> Just plain as can be. That's what needs to happen in your life. You need to be useful. And, of course, there are a number of details that need to be plumbed in order to understand ultimately what that looks like. But it just starts with a willingness to read and believe and obey God's Word. And you can't get very far into God's Word without seeing that being obedient to the Lord by being obedient to His Word means that you have relationships with Christians and that those relationships are becoming increasingly vibrant and important to you. You long for fellowship, and when you don't have fellowship, you long for it all the more, and you remember why you love the body of Christ so much. You know, some folks, when they leave and go on vacation, have this commitment. It's a good one. It's fine. They might find another local church in the area where they're going to be before they go because they want to worship with the Lord. They want to be with the saints. That's great if that's your conviction. That's not my conviction. I want to relax. When we leave, our plan is to be with family, be with friends. And Now, on occasion, when I'm in an area where a pastor friend serves, uh, I'll have the joy of preaching in his church, and that's always a great joy. But let me tell you something, and you know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We long to be back with you. The Monday after the Sunday we've been with you, knowing we're not going to be with you for a Sunday or two, we love you. And we thrive, really, we depend upon your input in our lives. We need it. The other thing, too, is that the further you get from the local church in which you are deeply involved and faithfully committed, the more you realize just how much the body needs you. And you've heard this phrase. I'm going to say it. Some of you know what I'm about to say. You need the body. The body needs you. That's 1 Corinthians 12, paraphrased. You need the body. But equally true is the fact that the body needs you. That's why Paul uses the illustration of a body. Everybody understands what it is for his or her body to be impaired in some way. You understand the process by which the body compensates for an ailing member, an absent member. A dead member, which is not a member, right? You know, those members that prove not to be members upon which the body has become dependent in some way, and then suddenly the faithfulness is just out the window. And we realize that was never faithfulness, that was self-righteous works in some cases. Reading through Ephesians is very convicting even for the faithful believer, but for the one who finds himself not useful, it's, uh, it's troubling and one of two things will happen. Either he will begin to spin it and say, well, I'm doing these other things. You know, I'm, I do things. You know, I serve. Or he will say, I need to 
I need to repent of my lack of involvement, my lack of faithfulness, my lack of willingness to examine the spiritual gifts, examine my spiritual gifts, identify them really, and uh, determine to be faithful to Christ by the use of them. Well, it's no secret that in our little church here, it's unusual for someone not to be involved in service. When we planted the church... um, Some of you will remember that I put a lot of emphasis on an article that was written, I think, back in the 70s, maybe the 80s, about Grace Community Church called The Church with 900 Ministers. Anybody ever see that article, by the way? The Church with 900 Ministers was about a church that really just displayed what it is to be faithful to the Lord. But the reason that the article got so much airtime was because it was unusual in the culture. Because church at that time, and especially today, has become about observing an event and approaching it with a consumer mindset. Now, don't answer out loud, but let me ask you a question. How many times have you looked at our discipleship series, and you've looked at the title, and you've thought, well, I don't need that. I don't need to know ecclesiology. I already have that. I've been through that with Todd twice in Ironman. Pneumatology, I've got that down. You see, what we've said from the beginning is that we're not the smorgasbord church, and the smorgasbord church is great for those churches that have the philosophy of ministry that says we're going to give multiple opportunities for people to choose from whatever they might want to choose from across the board. We said that's not our approach. Our approach is let's be faithful to some basic Christian disciplines, establish a regimen, and ask everybody to be involved in all of them. That's why we have family group every other week and discipleship every other week, so that it doesn't become an unbearable burden. It's not to say that it's an unbearable burden for churches who have Bible study throughout the week every week. It's certainly not an unbearable burden when they provide multiple opportunities for you. That's tremendous Churches are doing that faithfully, and we know that many are. But for us, we said, let's grow together. That's why your study guide is on the passage that I'm preaching from, or whoever is preaching. Let's do this together. Let's grow together. Let's maximize our efforts in each other's lives. Think of it. That would mean, then, if we are faithful to do that, that your growth means certainly the growth of those around you. Not necessarily everybody, but it means that their growth means your growth. This interdependency that you see in the body, that you see in the New Testament church, is what we have reached out for, and the Lord's blessed us, I believe, with that. The connection between chapter 1 and chapter 5 can't be forgotten, though. As you examine your usefulness, what I'm not asking you to do, in fact, I'd ask you not to receive what I'm saying as a guilt trip. I would also ask you to be careful that you avoid a guilt trip. Now, if you're guilty, embrace the guilt. But don't be motivated by the guilt. Recognize that all guilt is rooted in sin, and if Christ, in fact, bore your sin on the cross, he also bore your guilt. It does not mean that you ignore the guilt and you act like, well, it's not my fault, it's not a big deal, Christ took it, so somehow I'm off the hook. That's the wrong way to think about guilt. 
Think about guilt as if it is yours because it is. But the righteousness of Christ imputed to you this foreign alien righteousness that you didn't earn, you do not cultivate, you do not make it better, you do not amplify it. It is the righteousness of Christ by which God has justified you. The holiness in which you are growing is a different but related issue. That is your being conformed to the person of Christ in response to, in gratitude for imputed righteousness. You want to become more like him. And the way you and I are to do that is by being engaged with each other, interacting with each other. As I said, I wanted to close out the year with a message that would help you to prepare for the new year as we have often done. There's something especially helpful about turning the page on the calendar. January 1st reminds us that God's mercies are new every morning. So together, we need to look forward to more spirit-filled discipline in resting in the completed work of Christ for our forgiveness, gaining victory over sin, believing that his resurrection is the spiritual dynamite for doing so. It's the spiritual power for being faithful to him. Anything else is at the very least legalism and at the very worst works righteousness. It is about working hard to rest in what he has done. That might sound like a contradiction, but really all that means is being faithful to the spiritual disciplines. Pray, read your Bible, obey your Bible. By obeying your Bible, worship him. Minister to the saints. Receive ministry from the saints. If your testimony doesn't include the resurrection of Jesus, you've bypassed the gospel. There needs to be a regular awareness and dependence upon Christ's work on the cross, but also his overcoming death. So as we look forward to the new year, I would ask you to hit the reset button. It doesn't mean that you completely start over, especially if you have found yourself increasingly faithful. I would expect that most of you would probably say, this year was a better year for me. Now, lest you think that we're potentially overemphasizing the idea of New Year's resolutions, we're not, but recognize that every time you see the words, I will, in the Bible, that is a resolution. Resolutions are not evil. They are not worthless. Resolutions are critical. It's very important that you establish a plan based upon what the Bible says. That's why I sent that plan out to you. If you choose not to use that plan, use some plan. If you choose not to share the details of your plan with others, that's fine. But you need to at least be sharing some of what you're doing with your plan for growing spiritually with others so that you can be helpful to them. It's discipleship. You're pouring into others, helping them understand how you're growing, that they too might grow as well. So believe it or not, you can look forward to Mondays. I do. Monday's truly my second favorite day of the week. You don't have to have a favorite day of the week, by the way. Obviously, for me, it's Sunday. I think for most of you, it probably is Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's the day when we get the benefit and the joy of being ministered to by the saints. We fellowship, we strengthen each other, we pray for each other. We, we can do that throughout the week, but there's a more concentrated involvement as we gather together in obedience to the Lord. 
But your view of Sundays will determine your view of Mondays. Do you know that? If your work experience determines your view of Mondays, Monday might not be your favorite day. But if your Sunday experience is how you view Mondays, you will look forward to Mondays because you will recognize you have been equipped for Monday. You're equipped to bear up under the unfair servitude that your boss mishandles you with, if in fact that's the case with you. You recognize that you are to do your work as unto the Lord, heartily unto the Lord, not for eye service. So you're working for the Lord. You're doing what you're doing for His glory out of obedience to Him. Sunday is intended to prepare you for Monday. What we do while you are being sanctified in the moment prepares you for later in the week. Now, I've often said, and I hope you've embraced this mentality, what we do on Sundays in the preaching moment, in the preaching event, is not primarily intended to change your life so that you handle it better on Thursday or Monday. It's intended to exhilarate you in the moment. It's intended to bring you to your knees before the Lord and exalt Him in the moment that you're being changed, you're being sanctified by the Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as the truth of God's Word is faithfully proclaimed. You're being changed in the moment. You're being sanctified in the moment. It's not about Wednesday or Thursday. It's about right now. That said, as you are becoming no longer so much like yourself and much more like Jesus, by Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're better prepared. That's what the equipping of the saints is, that you would be salt and light in a twisted and perverted world. This morning, we'll examine Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5 for walking wisely so that we will know what the Lord's will is and make the best use of our time. You may have heard sermons, read books on knowing God's will, uh, by the way, the whole idea of knowing what your spiritual gifts are, I think, is often mystified and frequently overcomplicated. If you don't know what your gifts are, if you want to know what they are, know what they are in the Bible, understand what the current existent gifts are, the ones actually being practiced today, and then trust the Lord to give you wisdom by experimenting within your local body where the needs are. That's really a legitimate, simplified way to understand how to be useful in the body, how to know what the Lord's will is. Now, if you're wondering uh, what is God's will for my life this week or next week, who do I marry, which job do I take, what shirt do I wear tomorrow morning, the Bible won't tell you those things specifically. And if you're holding out for God to speak to you either audibly or somehow mystically, you've got a long wait. What the Lord does in the life of the faithful believer produces a proclivity for obeying him so that he would become wise. And then you do what you desire to do. You say, well, wait a minute, Luke 9, 23 says we're to deny ourselves. That's right, take up the cross and follow him. Following him will then mean that he will produce in you the kind of wisdom that's going to enable you to make wise decisions and look back on some of your decisions and say, oh, that wasn't so wise, let's go with plan B. But in our culture, and even in our Christian culture, we are so wound up into the idea that I have to know exactly what I need to do next before I do it. 
that we get hamstrung. There is much wisdom simply in subjecting yourself to wise people who are being faithful to the things that you desire to be faithful to. Don't look for God to write his will on the wall. As you go through this text, even as we read through it, you probably noticed if you were looking for it, when it comes to knowing God's will, there is no recipe for knowing which job to take. Right? You say, well, how, how then do people do that? How, you know, I know some people who seem to just make really good, wise decisions, and, you know, they've even said things like, well, I didn't have a piece about it, and then I, when I did have a piece about it, I went forward, and, you know, we don't want to be too critical of that idea, but we also don't want to be dependent upon the idea of having a piece about things, because many times doing the right things means you're not going to have a piece because it's very difficult. Walking faithfully with the Lord really is what we're talking about this morning. I put together a plan for you because it's been helpful to me. And if it proves helpful to you, praise God. If not that, then do something. Do something to make use of your time, the best use of your time. And I think a great starting place is to examine your time. When you do a financial budget, don't you track your spending It's not a bad idea to track how you spend your time. In counseling, I will often ask a person to track how they spend their time. The more you examine the way you spend your time, I believe the more you you will be motivated to spend it better. Well, point number one under this concept, point number one under this idea that we want to walk wisely so that we'll know what the Lord's will is and make the best use of our time Walk imitating God's sacrificial love. You could say that this is the bridge between the theology of chapters 1 through 3 and the practice or the orthopraxy that we're looking at here. What do I mean by that? I mean that God's love has been displayed in chapters 1 through 3. You see the riches of God granted fully Completely, all the riches of the Lord granted completely to his adopted children. Man, that's love. And you see that illustrated in the concept of inheritance in our culture and other cultures that parents will leave their riches to their children. God, who is the God and the creator of all the universe, has granted all his riches to his children. You say, well, isn't that all going to be divided up so it's distributed in a way that some get this, some get that? No, the idea is that you get it all. Each person gets it all. That's the miraculous reality of the immeasurability of God's riches. He's granted everything to his children, and we will enjoy them in heaven, and we will enjoy them by way of worshiping him because of them. That's what it will be all about. Verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know what beloved means? It means loved. Those upon whom God has placed his love. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Of course, this idea of a fragrant offering conjures up the Old Testament sacrificial system where 
when an animal was sacrificed, there was an odor that, of course, came from that. The Scripture speaks of the idea that a sacrifice would be pleasing to the nostrils of God. The sacrifice of a faithful person in the Lord, a person who would live his life in a sacrificial way, does so with Christ as his worthy example. And it ultimately comes down to loving others as he loved us. And so that would mean rejecting the idea of only loving those who prove themselves to be lovable. Right? You know, if your love for others were dependent upon their moment-by-moment lovability, then you and they would be in trouble. And so when you love someone, you choose to love them. If you're loving biblically, if you're loving spiritually, if you're loving in a Christian way, you're loving someone not dependent upon their performance, not dependent upon how they respond, but you're loving them because you've chosen to love them. Um, That's what my wife and I did. Right? When we got married, I didn't earn her love in such a way that she would have said, you know, Todd in every way is worthy of my love. She chose to love me despite some weaknesses, despite imperfections. She chose to place her love on me as I did with her. It's a lot easier for me to do that to her than her to me, I'm sure. This is what God did. He placed his love upon mankind. And when Paul speaks to those about the concept of adoption, he's speaking about a love that he placed upon those whom he would save by Christ's sacrificial death, which is an act of the Father's love. It's an act of the Son's love. So when you do this, you are showing that you are devoted to the gospel. It is a troubling thing that when you ask someone in so many contexts, what is the gospel, you don't get this answer. You get some other answer. And it might be partially right, but a willingness to love others in such a way that it displays God's particular love that is undeserved is to be faithful to this passage. It is to be faithful to the Savior who died for sinners. We're to imitate him. We're to imitate him in that way. Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 5, helps us to understand this in, in what I would call a basic theological way. You want to understand how to love like God loves, read Hebrews, and especially Here in chapter 10, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Um, You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God command those sacrifices? The point that is being made here is that the sacrifices, the Old Testament system of sacrifice was not ultimately pleasing to the Lord. It was a foreshadowing, right? It was pre-symbolic of what ultimately would please the Lord. So 
it says, you've taken no pleasure in that. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, a microcosmic way of addressing the precession of the old covenant to the new covenant. The old would be done away, the new would replace it. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified. Don't lose that thought. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that is a refutation of the modern Roman Catholic way of thinking that Jesus needs to re-die every time I sin. It's once for all, one time. Christ's death one time established the forgiveness of those for whom he died. And so the result is that sanctification begins with that cleansing act. In the moment that salvation takes place, sanctification has begun. Sanctification and salvation are not unrelated to each other. The moment of salvation is the beginning of sanctification. And so the person whose life is not being progressively sanctified must ask, is Christ's death applied to me or not? He also must be willing to ask, am I loving others in that way? Is it the proclivity of my heart to want to live a sacrificial life? It's not to say that the person who's faithful to that does not fail. He will. But the point is that that is the underpinning of his heart. The desire of his heart is to spend his life, for him to look ultimately back on his life and say, it's spent, it's all spent, it's gone. I've got nothing left. I spent it all. And what did I spend it on? The hope is that he could say that progressively throughout his life, the graph would show that he was increasingly living sacrificially. And what is that? That's love. That's love. You want a biblical definition of love. That's it. Now, Colossians 3, which we have often referred to in light of this truth, is so helpful. It's so practically helpful, beginning with verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, the person who just wriggles in his seat over this truth does so because he's not being sanctified. He wants nothing to do with the theological connection between spiritual growth and God's sovereignty. It makes him very uncomfortable. He hates this doctrine. Put on, then, as chosen ones, holy and beloved, the person who is set apart. That's what the word saints is. He's set apart. His life reveals God's work in his life. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's the, that's the first uh, issue that he's dealing with here when he says put on. Put on compassion. The first thing that will cause your compassion, whatever level of compassion you might have, the first thing that will dismiss your compassion is your legalism. 
your belief that when you see others sinning, that they just need to straighten themselves up. They just need to act right. They just need to be more, you know, like Thumper. If you don't have anything nice to say, then, you know, that nonsense. That's not Christianity. That's moralism. It's really behavior modification. It's not to say that as you grow spiritually, you won't be nicer. It's not really the right word. You'll be kinder. You will be more compassionate. And that's rooted in your understanding of God's compassion. He goes on and says, bearing with one another. Let me just stop and ask you, do you bear with others when you see them sinning or do you lash out? Do you let it go, let it go, let it go, and then just lash out? Or do you genuinely bear with others in their sin? He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then this, very clear, very concentrated, and really introductory statement, introductory into what biblical Christianity should be rooted in. And above all these Put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, Romans 12, we can't really look at this idea of imitating God and his love without examining at least briefly Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We think of Old Testament sacrifice. Yes, it looked forward to Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice then being the focus that the Old Testament picture looked to. That's what we're called to do. We're to be a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. In our lives, we are to be holy and acceptable to God. And that's our spiritual worship. He says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. See, you can know what the will of God is. You say, oh, you mean I, you're going to tell me which college to go to, right? No, that's not what this means. You can know that the will of God is to obey him. That's the will of God. It's a joyous will. It's an enjoyable life to obey God's word. Do not be conformed to this world is a very key phrase here, though. The person who chooses to be conformed to the world will lose interest in living a life of sacrificial love for others. He will neutralize any interest in being conformed to the image of Christ that he might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, point two. Walk away from sin and its eternal destruction. Verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul is making it clear that it's not proper to even joke about sexual immorality. There is no acceptable joke about sexual deviancy. They just don't exist. Paul says in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, 
which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So we're saying here, based on this, walk away from sin and its eternal destruction. That's point two. Walk away from it. Engage. Be deliberate. Whatever you must do, cut off the opportunity. There is a far greater imprisoning effect when it comes to the sin of sexual deviancy than other sins have. They grip the person because the person finds, if not momentary, lengthy satisfaction. It's sinful satisfaction. It's a gratification of the flesh, and it is imprisoning. It invokes emotion that other sins don't. For the one who has become engaged in adultery, it's no longer about sexual satisfaction. It's about sexual domination. Why do we say that? Well, because he could have sexual satisfaction in his marriage. So it's not about sexual satisfaction. It's about sexual domination. He says, I can have all that I want. I can have more. This was the downfall of Solomon. 1,000 adulterous relationships. Because he could. He was the king. He was the king. So he could dominate others sexually and he could justify it. He was legally in control. So for the man who is not the king, but still wants to dominate others sexually, he hides it. He would have sex with innumerable women as proven in his willingness to fantasize about such things with the use of pornography, with as many naked women whose pictures he can gain access to. And Paul clearly tells us to walk away from that. The man who won't do it should not wonder why in the world he's so imprisoned by it. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. See? Let there be thanksgiving. Be thankful for what God has given you. And you can. You can. If you've become imprisoned to sexual deviancy, it's going to take some work. It's going to take a multi-person effort to rip you, really, uh, to snatch you out of the fire, to put you in a place where you would become thankful for what God has blessed you with or for what God will bless you with in the future if he hasn't yet. It takes a lot of work. I've reviewed a number of websites that dealt with the statistics on pornography. I won't read all these to you. I don't have time, but... One website reported that porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 35% of all Internet downloads are porn-related, 35%. 34% of Internet users have been exposed to unwanted porn via ads, pop-ups. Well, no wonder. No wonder so many folks go down that path. Their hearts are inclined to do it, and then they have the opportunity, so they do it. People who admit to having extramarital affairs were over 300% more likely to admit consuming porn than those who have never had an affair. 
at least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn-related. 30%. There's so much more here, I don't have time to read it. But This is the work of Satan, as you know. Verse 6 in our text, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. What does that mean? Where, where does that come from? Empty words are a diversion. The person who's entangled in sexual deviancy will wrangle about empty words so as to change the subject and draw attention away from his sin. He says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are sons of disobedience? That's the person who lives in disobedience. It's, the, it's not the person who has a momentary failure. It's not the person who falls into some sort of seeming season of sin. This is the person that First John would say is not born of God. First John 3.10. It's obvious who are the children of the devil. They don't love the brethren. And they're not interested in righteousness. There's no interest in those things. But the person who is interested in those things is a child of God. So back to verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't let empty words become the mainstay of a conversation between you and someone who is devoted to sexual sin. He says, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's not just saying you have the light, you are in the light. He's saying you are light. And the person who would say, well, that's not me, he shouldn't be telling anybody he knows the Lord. You know, if you are not a beacon of hope to those who are stuck in the darkness... You might be in the darkness yourself. You might not be light. Listen to this uh, statement from Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. He doesn't say it can't be forgiven. But it can't be wiped away. You, your sins having been forgiven does not mean that they never happened. There's no forgive and forget concept in the Bible. The idea when God speaks of remembering not our sins against us is that they are not held to our account. It's not like God forgets. And no one against whom adultery has been committed is going to forget, rest assured. And the man that knows that, which is every man on the planet, has no sense. When he goes into adultery, he's senseless. For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. There's no way to make up for it. Can't be done. Cannot be done. The stain cannot be erased. So Paul says in verse 11 of our text, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And the person who walks in the light, the person who walks away from the filthy joke, and by the way, how do you do that? How do you get to the place where you are the person who no longer displays that nervous laugh when someone tells the joke that you know you shouldn't be laughing at? Wait for every joke. Wait for every comment. Be slow to respond to everything. So in the event that someone slips something inappropriate in, it's not unusual for you to not respond. Be prepared. 
Prepare your heart. Be the person who walks away from sin because of its eternally destructive impact. The person who does that exposes the darkness. The person who walks in the light naturally and really passionately exposes that which is evil. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. You know, in Romans 12, Paul tells us to never rejoice in unrighteousness. Have you ever found yourself looking back on your pre-Christian life and kind of laughing it up over your sinful conduct? Don't do that. That's rejoicing in unrighteousness. Maybe you're finding yourself laughing about your current unrighteous conduct. That is also rejoicing in unrighteousness. Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It doesn't make you the church watchdog, nor does it make you the societal watchdog where you're running around trying to expose everybody else's sin. The point is that where you have opportunity, when you have displayed the reality that in your life, you are a person who has credibility because you love like Christ loves, you love sacrificially, you will have a platform in the heart and life of people who see you to be credible. (laughs) If you don't have that credibility, don't do it. That's legalism. Right? It's hypocrisy. A willingness to point out other people's sin while you yourself are engaging in it and other sins, and you don't care about that. He says, for it's shameful even to speak of those things they do in secret. It's repulsive to bring up things that take place in the dark where they shouldn't be taking place. But when anything is exposed... By the light, it becomes visible. Well, that's obvious. And that's what you want. You want to live a life devoted to being in the light. And as you do that, the light, this is a symbolic reality, the light that emanates from your life will cast itself upon the darkness and therefore reveal what's in the dark in other people's lives. Friends, that's Christianity. That's basic faithfulness to honoring the Lord that you would have an inroad into people's lives to bear their sin burdens with them, Galatians 6. People might say, well, you know, I, I, I don't really feel like it's my business to address someone else's sin. There should be a handful of people in your life with whom you have that credibility. Paul goes on, verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. That's just further way of saying that that which is exposed in the light becomes part of the light unless it doesn't. That which is evil, that which is wicked, that which is sinful is revealed for what it is. But don't you want the light shown upon your life? Don't you want people, not in a proud, self-exalting way, but don't you want people to know about your spiritual growth? Don't you desire for others to be moved, to be charged, to be motivated, to be exhilarated by looking at you saying, you know, I remember you when you were useless. Maybe you don't want to hear those exact words. But certainly you've been useless. If that's offensive to you, then, well, good. Because that's true of all of us, and we need to be offended by our own uselessness, not by the person who points it out. You need to be willing to say, what needs to happen so that the Lord would make me useful? Many times it has to do with the light being shown upon our lives because of the faithfulness of other light-filled believers. 
Paul then refers back to Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, and says, Awake, O sleeper. Why does he say that? Because there are plenty of people in the church who are spiritually asleep. There are plenty who are dead, but then there are others who have never really gotten into a rhythm of spiritual growth. God saved them, and they've done little or nothing about it. And listen, that is not only the fault of that person many times. It's often the fault of those who have not engaged in a multi-person effort to bring that person along to spiritual maturity. Why do we treat brand new Christians like they ought to be faithful to everything we know simply because they're older than 20 years old? We ought to see infants as infants. We need to nurture growth. We need to spoon-feed spiritual infants. And there is the very likely prospect that the person who comes to the faith and is not spoon-fed, he's not treated lovingly and graciously and patiently and respectfully as a spiritual infant, that he won't grow and he will return to his unresurrected lifestyle. It's not to say he's saved and then unsaved. The idea is that he's just not growing and he gets very, very discouraged. Then what he might do is start acting like he's doing better than he actually is. That's not helpful because some people are really good at fooling others into thinking that they are actually doing well. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine the light of Christ on you. He who is the light will shine himself upon you if you will engage, if you will be faithful to that which you know is right and true and honorable and praiseworthy, if you will simply be obedient to those basic practices. Let me say it this way, in a way that I would hope to be encouraging to everyone, and especially those of you who say, you know, I got that email from you, Todd, and I opened it up, and I said, no way, this is way too much. Especially between now and Sunday, how am I going to get this done? Let me be an encouragement to you and tell you, you simply need to drink voraciously from the pure milk of God's Word. Don't worry about the doctrine of election for now. That's for the spiritually mature. It is. Look at Hebrews 5. The person who is not yet teaching, in some cases, it's because he's dull of hearing. He's been faithless. He ought to be teaching the Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews really comes down hard on those folks. But those who are truly infants in the faith, and maybe you have come to us newly, and you've been in churches or a church over the years that really didn't do much to nurture your spiritual growth, your high view of God's Word, your high view of God, your love for the church. There was just kind of an entertainment focus, and this is all new to you. Take heart. Take heart. There are people sitting within feet of you who would love to walk through the spiritual life with you and would take great joy in being useful in your life so that you would be useful in other people's lives spiritually as well. You know, and I want to say this too, if you've fallen into a season of sexual deviancy, you say, how do I know if I've been deceiving myself? How do I know if I've been deceiving myself into thinking that I'm a Christian when I'm not? You're asking the wrong question. What you ought to be asking is, how do I walk away? How do I walk away right now? That's the right question. If you spend all your time meditating on whether or not you were a Christian, have been a Christian or not, you're wasting your time. 
If you spend some time thinking about that, that's probably not a bad idea. But if you spend all your time thinking about that, you're making it about you. Let it be about Christ's accomplished work on the cross and walk away from sin that leads to hell. Walk away from it. The purpose that the Lord has for you, that you would be, back to Ephesians 1, that you would exist to his glory. So as we go into the new year, ask yourself, to what degree am I working hard to rest in the completed work of Christ, that I would be likened unto his image, that I would be less like myself, that I would decrease, that he would increase. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word, your perfect, exhilarating, powerful, life-altering word by which the Spirit of God does an immense work of sanctification. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to walk away from sin. Lord, help us to be gracious with those who are seemingly unable to walk away from their sin. Help us to embrace a Galatians 6 mindset that we would bear the burden of sin with those who are entangled in it. Lord, that they would find hope in Christ as we have found hope in Christ to display victory over sin, that we would walk away from that which is destructive, that our time would be spent well, we would know your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.